Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today Judy Lampoo is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Judy and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health, and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show, and after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, Judy Lampu, producer, screenwriter, lyricist, singer, and Miss Senior Santa Clara. For the past few years, Judy has been writing and producing a CD book project dealing with the loss of loved ones entitled Grief Rhymes with Thief, as well as a book for young adults and a sci-fi pop rock opera entitled Real. Working with Finnish jazz star Bianca Morales, and her label, Bean Records International, Judy wrote all the English lyrics for two CDs, the most recent, 13 songs on the newly released homage to Roman Holiday entitled When in Rome. This CD 
is considered to be a tribute to the great jazz classics of the 50s and 60s with wonderful arrangements by Sven Nygaard. Judy also completed an English version of songs for Bianca's upcoming Christmas CD and an original holiday song, Let's Be Children for, Co- for Christmas, co-written with Bonnie Janofsky. Early in her career, Judy and her partner, Patricia Ford, had the good fortune of getting one of their scripts to Peter Falk, who, upon reading it, didn't care that they were unknown writers. And, caution, murder can be hazardous to your health, became the two-hour 1991 season opening of Columbo. Judy has written title songs for films and television with many projects in the works. Among her song credits are Situation for Joe Bet Motown, Lulu by the Jackson Five, and Nobody, a Capitol Records Nancy Wilson release. With CBS's Morton Stevens, Judy co-wrote a TV special, Antonio and the Mayor. Join me as I uncover how the reigning Miss Senior Santa Clara fared in the Miss Senior California State Pageant. Welcome, Judy, to Win Without Competing. Thank you, Arlene. I'm happy to be here. You had a very difficult childhood. You lived in a children's home from which you ran away three times. Yet, you managed to get in touch with with your passion at an early age. How old were you when you started to write lyrics and short stories? I was actually nine years old, and that was actually my first year living in the children's home. Writing was a great outlet, and uh, it really allowed me to express myself and express my feelings, and it was so much fun teaching myself how to be a writer. In terms of lyrics, I mean, one needs to be really succinct and to the point, and I know that you would excel at that. How do you think, at the age of nine, you learned to do that? Well, what I did was I used to listen to the hit records on the radio, and I'd write new lyrics. All They would make great songs on their own, I thought, and that way I would have something to start with. And writing new lyrics that way taught me the format and the form of good songs. And I just sort of instinctively knew that I shouldn't write poems, that I should write lyrics, because I realized a lot of people didn't like to read poetry, at least not the people I knew, but everybody seemed to love songs. So that was my way of getting my message out there. Now, I don't know how succinct I was in the beginning, although I think I wasn't bad at it even then, but over the years I've gotten better. I guess you were a natural at age nine. I think I must have been. I didn't think of myself that way. I just knew it was fun to do, and I had an aptitude for it, and I did a lot of it. (laughs) At the same time, still at age nine, your fifth-grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Miller, encouraged you as a writer. Tell us about that and how it affected you, not just over the short term, but for the rest of your life. Well, one of the highlights of my life, I loved school, and Mrs. Miller was part of that. And I didn't like the children's home a lot, so I I escaped to school, and I was a good student. I enjoyed it. And one day she put Saturday Evening Post uh, magazine covers, Norman Rockwell stuff, all over the walls, lots of them. And I looked around, and it just piqued my imagination like you can't believe. I thought, wow, this is fun. So I wrote four short stories based on these pictures. And a few days later, we came to class, and she announced, most of you managed to write one of those stories, and one of you wrote two, and one of you wrote four. And you know what? She's going to get up right now and read them all to you. And although I was very shy and I was embarrassed beyond belief, I still got some joy out of the fact that she recognized me and gave me kudos for talent. I got up and read my stories, and... I didn't stop hearing the end of it at the children's home where I lived for years because 
all the kids that came after me said, all we ever hear is your name. The teacher just raves about you over and over and over. So (laughs) she gave me confidence. She gave me support. She gave me something I hadn't had before. And it served me well for my whole life because someone believed in me. Did you ever continue your relationship with her after you finished the fifth grade? I saw her continually during the next year. I only lived in the home for two years, although it seemed an eternity to me at the time. And after I left the children's home, no, we moved far away, and it just never occurred to me to ask her how to reach her privately because you just didn't do that back then, I guess. And uh, I've thought of her a million times, but never tried to find her, and by now she's probably not a living anymore. (laughs) Well, I tell you one thing, I'm sure that she always continue thinking about you because clearly you made a tremendous impression on her yes i think so and and i was just so excited and thrilled to have somebody care she gave me special books to read and encouraged me in so many ways she was the light in the darkness of my life at that time do you think she knew that you know i don't know i was too young to even give that a thought i just knew i was enjoying and i appreciated her and I valued her. I mean, she she cared almost like a second mother. One day when I refused to play the game that everybody voted to play, she put me over her knee. Nowadays you couldn't do that. But you know what? I knew she did it out of love. <laughs> ah, oh, no, nowadays you'd be uh, in jail. I know. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> No, I don't I don't think uh teachers are putting uh, students over their knee anymore. And maybe that's a shame. <laughs> well, you know, that that's worth another whole conversation, Jimmy. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. At age 14, you won an American Legion award for best essay in school. How did you feel when you won the award? What and what was the hypocrisy that you identified? Well, uh, the day that I came into class and they spring it on you, they put these titles all over the board, and I I picked the one that said Contributions I Can Make to America, and I wrote it down really quickly, and because it was a mess, I copied it over. Thank God for that, because due to that, I have a copy of it, or I never would have. They didn't give it back to me. But I thought it was really good, so I took it home, and I tried to read it to my mom, to my sisters. My stepfather was out of the question, I just thought, well, nobody has time for it. Everybody kept saying later, later. So I put it away and didn't give it another thought, although I I felt sure it was good. And then I don't remember if it was weeks later, uh, we had a big school assembly. And uh, somebody pointed out my parents were in the back, my stepfather and my mother all dressed up, he he in a suit and my mother in her big picture hat. And uh, so I arranged to go sit with them, and I said, what are you doing here? And Mother said, oh, wasn't I supposed to come to this assembly? I said, no. So it was a mistake. But we sat there, and soon they had the drama club members get up and start reading. And a girl got up and started reading my little story, my essay. And I went, oh, I wasn't actually that surprised. I really thought it was good. My mother handed me a Kleenex, and I said, I don't need that. She thought I was going to cry. And even though I was shy, I felt very vindicated and I walked up on stage and got my award went back to my seat afterwards we were outside and all the popular kids who never talked to me before (laughs) surrounded me and suddenly I was in and my stepfather gave me some money and usually he didn't even like me and (laughs) everybody was so nice to me and to top it all off my English teacher and that was my favorite subject had been giving me C's all year didn't seem to read my essays, or if she did, she wasn't impressed. She gives me an A in the class because I won the award. And I was thinking the whole time, what a bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) So at that age, I already figured that out. It's amazing how sharp you were as a young one. Well, I had a tough life. Maybe that does it. (laughs) Well, but you know what's interesting? Some people that have a tough early childhood are able to raise themselves up above it and move ahead on with their lives. And you're someone who did that. Yeah, I was the oldest. My sister was younger, three years, and she did not fare so well. I got tougher and she got more fragile. 
So, yes, everyone turns out different. Maybe my makeup is different. The whole thing made me just tougher. My mother used to call me a bitch on wheels. Pardon my French. <laughs> okay. I was actually proud of it. <laughs> you were proud of it? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'd rather be that. Yeah, well, you didn't want to be someone that people took advantage of. Am I understanding you correctly? Absolutely. I did not want to be a doormat. Well, I think that's important. I think especially in a society whereby it isn't easy to succeed in whatever you do, I think being a little tough is not a bad quality. Yeah, for me, it served me well. And clearly... We don't need to say that you can't assert yourself. And we'll talk more about that as we go on because packaging to pitch, managing the process are things that I think you do naturally. And it obviously started in childhood because of your situation. Going further, we're still at age 14 and... I'd love to hear, and I know our listeners as well would love to hear, about your first job at May Company on Wilshire Boulevard, which was their flagship store. It's fascinating how you managed to get that job. Tell us about it, Judy. Well, I knew they were hiring, and I knew I was too young, and I got a work permit, and somehow, I can't even remember how I did it, I managed to change the 4 to a 6 and make myself 16. That's the first time in my life I can remember having done something a little bit dishonest. I don't think I ever did anything like that before. And in my life, I'm not in a habit of doing things like that, but I really wanted to go to work, and I really wanted to earn my own money. And it worked, and they hired me. And I, I just was so proud of myself and so thrilled. I was a cashier. I was a sales girl. I wrapped presents. I learned how to be a great present wrapper. I'm still pretty good at it. And I earned my own money and bought some of my own clothes, and it was just rewarding. Did they ever figure out that you were only 14? Never. <laughs> you must have looked very mature. Well, I was fairly developed already by the age of, like, 13. So, and I was, you know, I was ahead. I skipped in in school. I was ahead of my grade. So, in spite of going to 14 schools, I still managed to almost always do pretty well in school because I liked it. And uh, I just could handle myself. You know, sometimes when you have a sort of a tough background, you know, you talk to kids from the street, it's the same thing. They seem older. In terms of your ability to change your behavior, Tell us about that, because I would think having gone to 14 schools and having things change very quickly around you, how did that impact your own personal ability to change your behavior and adapt? I can't say that I'm aware that that changed my behavior. I only know that I was always shy, and it was difficult to make new friends all the time, but somehow I always managed to make at least one or two the lasting friendships actually didn't begin until I was in junior high school, and then some of those people I'm still friends with. But that was the first time I had any real stability because from my, my even though I went to three junior highs, this was the final one, and it led to the high school that I went to for three years, and I stayed friends with some of the same people. And as far as adapting, I guess I'm just, I had to learn to be naturally adaptable. I had to survive. I had to fit in. So I learned how to fit in without ever becoming too uh, involved in peer pressure. I didn't smoke when all my friends did. It didn't matter. I just didn't care. I've always been sort of an individual, and I do my own thing. My mother used to not like how I dressed, but I dressed how I dressed, and that was that. Eventually it was in style. I just thought I always had a sense of myself. How did you dress? Let's hear about that. Mother thought I dressed like a gypsy, and I just... I liked a certain kind of look, and maybe it was a gypsy look, but eventually it came into style. It may not have been when I started it. I have long curly hair, and I wore it long, and I, I like to wear the big loop earrings, and I guess I looked a little bit like I could have been a gypsy. I don't know. I didn't care. I liked it. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because my dad wasn't too crazy about what I was wearing when I was growing up. I was busy buying all kinds of bright clothes, which I loved, and uh, he sort of looked, shook his head a little bit, but never said, 
I couldn't wear them or I shouldn't buy them. But I knew he wasn't fond of how I was dressing either. So, but you have I, your your sense of style also, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And it stays with you. <laughs> it does stay with you. I mean, I could care less. I just did what I wanted to do in terms of how I wanted to dress. And I remember my friends, uh, when I started wearing makeup, they thought this was unnecessary. <laughs> so what I told them was that I was protecting my skin. Oh, and good answer. Absolutely, because if you wear foundation from a young age, you are protecting your skin. And how do you think they look now? Not so terrific. Yeah, I didn't wear foundation, but I definitely wore a little blush if I needed it, and I, I wore eye makeup, and I wore lipstick, and a lot of my friends were in show business, including my best friend, so I was always, you know, coming from sort of the Hollywood area. I was always surrounded by people who were into fashion and makeup, so that was never an issue. Let's go further. Now we've got something fascinating to talk about. Age 15 was memorable for you. You choreographed Broadway-style shows in high school and recorded a song at Capitol Records. Tell us about both events. And I'm particularly interested in hearing how you and your friend succeeded in pitching yourself. I mean, we know you're confident. We know you're self-assured. We know you're dynamic. But still in all, what did you do to be successful at that young age? You know, the odd, the odd thing about it is we didn't pitch ourselves at all. What we did was we just sort of took over the class. The teacher didn't seem to mind. We were doing her work for her, and we just started having people come over to our houses after school and not just practicing in the auditorium or the gymnasium, but they would practice at each other's homes. We would we would choreograph, teach everybody their parts. Everybody sort of went along with it. We just took leadership and never had any problems. Uh, we, we choreographed, uh, put together uh, our own version of South Pacific and Oklahoma, and we were in the choir, too. So the choir was going to sing the songs, and they followed our lead. And the dance class was going to dance our dances, and they followed our lead. And then we conned the boys into being in the show. They thought, that's sissy stuff. They don't want to do that. But I made my boyfriend do it and uh, talked another boy into it by telling him his best friend already agreed. And then we reversed the procedure. Little by little, we had a whole bunch of guys in the show. And we well, look how them. you pitched yourself. You yeah, well, I guess we did. To the boys. You see, you do it so naturally, you don't call it that. I and guess you're right. Yeah, no, that's, un, that's not uncommon because if it's just part of you, you don't say, I'm now going to pitch your, myself. You just pitch yourself. I and guess that's we just what do you it. Did. You yeah, did it we... naturally. <laughs> well, think about it to yourself. To get the students to practice after school, to spend their time to do all of that, you had to have convinced them to do it. Somehow we were charismatic enough to make them want to do it. They were excited and thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, Charlotte and my, my best friend and I, we took dance classes and we did shows and they knew it. So we were kind of semi-pro anyway. So they were just, they just went along. Nobody ever protested. I never even thought about it. The only one who seemed to mind, this, this is terrible, the teacher of the class, she gave us both a B instead of an A in the class. So we went with our report cards and asked her, why did you give us a B? And she said, I don't want it to go to your heads. Can you believe that? Oh, I believe that. <laughs> I, re I remember when I was in college, and when I was first out of college, I taught fifth and sixth grade. And when I was doing student teaching while in college, the master teacher said to me that she was giving me a instead of an A because I overstimulated the children. <laughs> Can you imagine this? I overstimulated them. It's jealousy in both cases. Absolutely. My point rests. That's so it. that's exactly the case. So I know what she was talking about yep. because I had the same situation. It never occurred to us that that would happen, and we were both stunned. But we were thrilled with what we had done, and so was everybody else. <laughs> Tell us further 
about you and Charlotte uh, taking yourself off to Capitol Records and how that came about. Uh, Charlotte and I had a girls trio called the Treasure Tones. Three of us, we used to sing at parties and dances and all kinds of things. We even had one of our records in a movie. Uh, we were underage, but we did we did great harmonies. Uh, we used to emulate the McGuire sisters, the Ponytails, uh, the all the famous uh, you know si- sister acts, all the trios. We just did all the great harmonies, and we had a great time. Well, I had a neighbor who lived like across the street. He was older. I think he was around 21 or 22, and he knew that we sang. And so he wrote songs and asked us, would we sing with him and be a new trio? And so we became the the Galaxies, and he had somehow made a deal with Capitol Records. They were going to record some of his songs. So we went into Studio A, the famous studio at Capitol Records, which has a very famous, world-famous, real, authentic, underground echo chamber. And to this day, it's still renowned for that, and all the greats have recorded there. And Capitol was only about a year old, and so... We didn't think of it as any big deal. We never, I never was impressed with myself or the whole situation. It was just one more thing that we were going to do. And we wound up recording six sides for Capitol Records, and they had to change our names from the Galaxies to the Royal Galaxies because they found out there was another group, the Galaxies. They took our picture with a Ford Galaxy to promote us, and we got a bit of a hit on one song called The Big Triangle what they called a turntable hit. It was a hit in Boston and San Francisco and a few other cities. And so we had a lot of fun. We were on the Wink Mightendale show. We were on the Al Jarvis show. We were on Spotlight on Youth. We did a bunch of shows. And uh, we got paid, and we had a really good time. And I didn't know until recently that Mr. Al Hazen gave some interviews to the papers, the Times and the Herald Examiner at that time, and he actually said that we were all three a genuine tr- love triangle, which is what the song was about. Now, we were 15 years old. He was 22. <laughs> right, right. Was he, decided not... that was, he, would just, he decided to make it a, give it a contemporary flair to it. Ex- except in those days or even now, he'd be arrested. We were jailbait, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And I didn't, fi- I didn't find out about this until recently because I got contacted by this author who writes about the music industry. He happens to be in Australia, and I was going to be in this book, and he gave me all this information, and I corrected it. I said, that never happened, and he asked me to please correct everything before he put it in the book, but if it wasn't for him, I would never have known about this bogus story. It's amazing what people enjoy concocting, don't you think? Yeah. Unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> But that's it, okay. It gave you a good laugh, right? It did. It made me laugh at this point. <laughs> How did you feel when you landed a part in the play, The Most Happy Fella? And how did that come about? My girlfriend Charlotte had been performing since she was a child. I even used to accompany her to her singing lessons, and I was vicariously learning to sing uh, in a way by just being there, learning all the great songs that she was doing. And uh, she was performing as a dancer, an actress, a singer, and she would take me with her sometimes. And this particular audition, she took me with her, and we both got into the chorus. And actually, that's one of the other members of the chorus, and he was an understudy to the lead. This guy named Dave Russell became my first husband. Short-lived, but that was it. (laughs) Well, we have two more to go, which we'll talk about later. So Okay. Yeah, you, you, you dropped him off now as the first husband, and he's gone, so we don't need to talk about him. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> it was very brief. It was a mistake that I corrected after two years. Even at the age of 19, I knew better. I figured it out. That's why you understand the concept of the right fit. You know what a blueprint is. I know when something's not right, and I just change direction. That's exactly right. So now tell us more about uh, the the role that you played in Most Happy Fella, and how did you feel when you had to audition? Were you confident? Were you nervous? Or did you already um, say, I'm getting this role? I think I just knew I was going to get it, and it wasn't a problem. I, I had to sing and dance and be a member of the chorus, and at that time I was a pretty good dancer and an okay singer, 
I learned how to be a better singer much later in life, but at that time I wasn't too bad, and I, I got in. We both did. What happened to Charlotte? I'm very curious. She's married and has grown children and grandchildren, and she lives up in Aloha, Oregon. And we still stay in touch. We email and we phone, and every now and then she gets down here or I get up there. It's wonderful how you still stayed in touch for so long. Well, she's the person I've known the longest at this point. I met her when I was like 13 in junior high, and we stayed friends all this time. Did she continue with her career as you did with yours? No, you know, once she got married and started having children, she didn't, but she always had a fabulous voice. People often compared her to like a Barbra Streisand, and she had a big voice, and she still sings at at parties and events, and people still rave about how great of a singer she is. Hmm. Your career is an interesting mixture of jobs as you pursued your passion as a lyricist. You were the assistant to the legendary Doris Day. What was that like? Oh, that was a very interesting, exciting, unbelievable episode. Uh, I had been working for three years for Procter & Gamble Productions. They were the liaison office between the Doris Day Show and the Procter & Gamble office and the advertising agency. And when a job opened up to be her secretary, the, the production secretary called me up, knew me on the phone already quite a bit, and said, uh, are you interested? And I said, yes, I am. Went over there, and I interviewed with the gentleman who was actually one of the casting directors, and he ran her music publishing, and and he had to do with uh, setting up the scoring sessions. And so he hired me, and I wound up helping with all those various departments and learning an enormous amount. But my first day on the job was unbelievably memorable. I'm sitting there in my chair trying to adjust to this new circumstance, and all these plainclothes detectives are are just bustling all over the place. And I thought, what is going on? And then I was told that the night before there were the Manson killings. And Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, was supposed to be one of the, the target people they want, they were after. So here were these plainclothes detectives all over the place trying to secure the, the situation and make sure he was safe. But boy, what a beginning. But ever after that, it just became exciting for other reasons. <laughs> Amazing. What was she like, Doris Day? She was a doll. She's sort of a, a, a tomboy. She was loved to ride her bike. She used to ride her bike all over Beverly Hills, and if she saw stray dogs, she'd round them up and take them back to the owners and give them a lecture on how to take care of their animals properly. And, you know, she always has been quite the animal advocate. She was a member at that point, uh, one of the founders of Actors and Others for Animals, So a good deal of my job was helping with the animal uh, rights projects, and uh, I got heavily involved in that. Ultimately, she stopped being a member and founded her own Doris Day Foundation and the Doris Day Animal League, and now she has uh, a a new one, a a scholarship fund in her son's honor. Unfortunately, Terry passed away of cancer a few years ago, three or four years ago, and that had to be devastating, her only child. But he was really a lot of fun, too. I really liked Terry quite a bit. Um, In fact, he was trying to fix me up. He thought I I should be married off to somebody who was well-heeled, and I I didn't know what well-heeled meant at that time. (laughs) I thought, what is he talking about, good shoes? You know, (laughs) That's terrific. But Doris was a lot of fun. and In fact, uh, one day I came to work. uh, I had seen one of the other secretaries wearing hot pants to work, and I went, oh, we can wear hot pants to work? So I came to work in knitted ones that my father manufactured in his factory. And Abby Singer, who was our production manager, called me into his office and said, do not go down to the set. Don't go down there dressed like that. The guys won't do their work. I went, oh, okay. So I went back to my desk. Doris calls me up, said, come on down. She wanted to dictate. And I said, I can't. She said, why not? And I told her. She said, you get down here. So I went down there, and she looked me up and down, and she said, I want one just like it. So I got my, <laughs> got my father to make her one. She didn't care about any of that. She, she said, us girls, we're not going to worry about what the guys do or say or think. It's their problem. <laughs> what color were these hot pants? They were brown, actually. I remember they were brown, chocolate brown, and, uh, but they were fitted because they were knit, and uh, it was pretty sexy, I guess. 
But I, I never would have done it if I hadn't seen the other secretary dress like that. And then, of course, she hated me for it, too. So I couldn't win. <laughs> we try. We try. We try. Yeah. Uh, tell us your thoughts about something special that you're planning about singing Doris Day songs. Oh, my darling husband came up with this idea, and I think it's a really, really great one, and I agreed. Uh, well, we also should say this is husband three, Steve. Husband three. three. Husband three, yes. Stephen, who we're, we're celebrating 10 years October the 5th. And uh, he suggested, he's in, he's in the business as, w- as well, and he came up with this brilliant idea that I should do a celebration of Doris Day. I will cele- Judy celebrates Doris. I will sing her songs in a one-woman show, and the, some of the proceeds will go to one of her animal foundations. And I'd like to do it while she's around to appreciate it because I don't want to wait and, and put it off too long. I mean, she's about the age my mother would be if she, my mother were living. It's, she's around 85 or 86, I'd have to check. And I just want her to know that I care and I'm doing this for her and for me. I just think it's brilliant. I love it. I love her songs. I love her music. And I can sing that kind of thing well, and I'm just really thrilled to do it. Judy, sing a few bars of one of the songs that you're planning to sing in the show. Okay, how about... Once I had a secret love That lived within the heart of me All too soon my secret love Became impatient to be free. That's one of the ones I love. Oh, it's beautiful. And your voice is wonderful. I can't wait to go to your show. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) Well, keep us, in other words, keep me posted and I'll share the information with our listeners. Absolutely. That would be great. Terrific. Going further, you co wrote songs for the Jackson 5. How did this gig come about? Back to the Doris Day show, uh, I met somebody on the telephone named Adenier Paris. He and his brother were songwriters, but they had been in Boy Scouts with Terry Melcher, Doris's son, so they'd known each other since they were little. And we used to call up and we got to talking and I told him I wrote lyrics and the next thing you know we got together and I wrote a whole lot of songs with them. I still write with them. And uh, they had, uh, for a while, they were on staff. They were writing for Joe Bet, which is the publishing arm of Motown. And they wrote a lot of songs for them. And they had an opportunity to co-write to write this song. And they asked me to write it with them called Lulu. So I did. And it was recorded. But it never came out back then. And I always wondered why and what happened. But several years ago, I started getting royalties. The song was apparently put into a compilation CD that was released only in Europe, and it's called Soul Sation. And then, after the unfortunate passing of Michael, I happened to find on YouTube, Lulu, there's a video there. I was just so stunned. But I'm so happy to be getting royalties, if nothing else. It's really great that they finally released it. If our listeners wanted to see the video of Lulu on YouTube, they would just uh, type in Michael Jackson? What would they do? I think I typed in Michael Jackson and up came a bunch of his music. I think you can also put a title in, and they can find it. It's not difficult, especially the people that know how to navigate through YouTube. It came up really quick and easy. I wasn't even looking for it. I was just so, looking at, at Michael Jackson music. So do you actually see him? You see the Jackson 5 singing You see the, the Jackson 5 singing and dancing around? Yeah. Oh, that should be adorable. I can't wait to look at it. All right. Going further, tell us about your professional relationship with James Brown, the godfather of soul. Well, actually what happened was uh, he had a, uh, a road manager named Bud. Bud Hobgood was his name. I can't even remember how I met Bud, but Bud uh, took me uh, in a helicopter to a few of James Brown's concerts, and I was backstage. It was really, really a lot of fun. And uh, one of them was in Oakland, and by the way, uh, one was in San Diego, but the one in Oakland was memorable because 
uh, we went to dinner at the mayor's house, the mayor of Oakland. I, his last name was Sullivan. And he had a teenage daughter who taught me, and I was a go-go dancer at the time, believe it or not. He, she taught me the latest dance step that was called the duck. And I brought it back to Hollywood with me and put it into my routine. And it was a kind of a sensation. <laughs> Terrific. And But the professional part was they flew me to Nashville. They needed some songs, original songs, for the mayor of Macon, Georgia. His name was Ronnie Thompson. And I wrote the lyrics, and some composers wrote the music. And we wrote uh, about two or three songs, and two of them wound up on the album, including the title song. It was called Here I Am. And Macon's mayor was kind of infamous because he used to wave a gun around at his desk at people who gave him trouble. So back then he didn't get in trouble for it. He just got famous for it. Nowadays I don't think he could get away with it. But that's why James Brown recorded him on his Starday King label, and that's how I got the deal. And that was kind of cool. They flew me to Nashville. I got to do some writing, and they flew me home. How did you connect with Finnish jazz star Bianca Morales? for whom you wrote the lyrics for two CDs? Um, I was married to Peter Lampu, who was a Finnish motocross racer. Who That's had emig- the second husband. The second husband. And he, he, he emigrated to the United States with his first wife. And after they split up, he wound up on the West Coast here and went back to motocross, which is what he had been famous for in Europe. And he became one of the top riders in the country. And while he was here... He, uh, we were introduced in a long story. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, but my cousin Ron worked for Montessa Motors where he was. And we wound up, after knowing each other only a couple of months, we wound up going to Vegas and got married. Uh, he married me because he thought he was going to lose me. I had reached the point in my life where I wasn't trying to get settled down. I was just a free spirit, enjoying my life, D- dating people because they were great and fun, and I could do this with this one and that with that one, and... He was afraid to leave town and go racing because he didn't want to lose me. So next thing you know, he, he wanted to get married. And I don't know what made me decide it was right, but I did it. And we were married for 24 years. Well, during that marriage, we had many trips to Finland. And his cousin, Maria, business partner to her, was Bianca Morales. And that's how I met Bianca and Maria. And they knew that I wrote lyrics. And when the time came that they wanted some English lyrics written, they actually mailed me a cassette. Back then, it was, you know, that was the way we did things. We didn't do them by computer yet. Right. And I wrote lyrics and faxed them the lyrics. And they loved it, so they sent me another cassette. One at a time, until all of a sudden, they had me doing the whole CD. And they loved everything I did. So that was permanent now. They have me write all their English lyrics. Every, everything that comes up in the next CD that we did, you know, just a few years ago, the Rome CD, uh, that one turned out just sensational. I actually loved much of the music on both of them. And Bianca's a, big, Bianca's a big star there, by the way. She's uh, She and her partner put on the first five days of a world-famous jazz festival, the Porty Jazz Festival. It's called the Kids Festival, and it's just wonderful. It's more successful every year. You co-wrote with partner Patricia Mayo Ford the season opening of Columbo. How did this come about? Well, I was a secretary and a personal assistant and a floater all over the lot at uh, Columbia Pictures. And my partner, Pat, had been a policewoman and a psychiatric social worker, and she was quite brilliant. And uh, between the two of us, we decided we'd try to write some things together. And it turned out I had a friend, another assistant secretary-type person on the lot who worked for Peter Falk, and her name was April. And April said you know, why don't you write a, a, a spec script for, for Columbo, and I will get him to read it. So we did. And then she said, my friends have written this script. Will you read it? He, he said, I'm not going to read your girlfriend's script. Don't be silly. And he wouldn't read it. So then she said, well, how about if I give you a clue, one of the clues? You love good clues. If you like the clue, will you read it? No, he said no. But she knew him well, and after a couple of days, his curiosity got the better of him, and he couldn't take it anymore, and he said, all right, what's the clue? So she told him the clue, and he said, okay, I'll read it. So <laughs> he Do read it. Do you remember what the clue was, Judy? Because, I mean, that's pitching again, you realize. Uh, yeah, 
I think we had a lot of clues. One of the interesting things that happened in the, one of the story meetings was he said, ladies, I hate to tell you this, but this never happens. Getting enough clues has always been the challenge. But you ladies have got too many clues. Please eliminate one or two. By the way, we didn't. They never figured it out. They never noticed. Anyway, <laughs> so what I, what we did, I think the clue was there were fingerprints on only one side of a piece of paper, and that's a not a natural way to hold a piece of paper. And so he figured out that somebody planted the fingerprints by placing the the, uh, the deceased hand upon the paper. It would have been real hard to make him grip the paper on both sides since he was no longer living. Right. I think that I think that's the, I think that's the clue that got him. And Terrific. he wound up. He loved the script. He brought it into the uh, producer's office and to the story editor's office, and they brought it back to him and said, "Who are these broads? We never heard of them." And he said, "What the bleep do you care? It's a great bleeping script. <laughs> you read the damn thing." He said. So they read it, and the next thing you know, we had a deal. And on top of that, we were very surprised that they didn't just buy the story idea, which is what usually happens with unknown writers and hire some other professional writers to do whatever rewrites they required. And instead, we got hired to do everything. He wanted another scene added. He wanted another scene developed. And as to knowing a little bit more about him, uh, one of our, our devices was the main character was being blackmailed because of a porno video he had made early in his life. And we just alluded to it. We didn't go into details. Well, guess what? Mr. Falk said, I want you to write exactly what goes on in that porno video. So <laughs> so afterwards, we talked together, and, and Pat's, and I, we both decided he just wanted to see if us little girlies were, were willing to do that. He shook you up is what he was trying. He was trying to shake you up yeah. on gathering. Yeah, he wanted to see what would happen. So she What had, did happen? Well, what happened was she had been a police officer, and she'd worked undercover vice, and she had to bust people for pornography all the time, so she wrote that scene. She wrote the scene for him, just like he said. And I wrote the other scene he wanted, which was he wanted a scene that was like from the uh, the uh, Emmy Awards. He wanted dancers with pretty legs dancing in the background. and So I wrote that scene, and she wrote the porno scene. And they pretty much did the porno scene as much as far as they could go. But they did use it. They actually used it. You I know. Think he was shocked that you that you actually gave him a porno scene. I don't know how he felt about it, but we gave him what he asked for. The only thing we ignored and did not give him, we did not remove any of the clues. And it was so funny because he never noticed. <laughs> he sounds like he must have been terrific to work with. He was a lot of fun. My only problem was he was always smoking, and neither of us liked cigarette smoke, and we couldn't exactly tell Peter Falk, please don't smoke in the story meeting, so we just did our best and tried to hold our breath. <laughs> <laughs> now, up until now, everything has been a great success story. Um, we You've always pitched yourself, taken charge in terms of what I refer to as managing the process, and got exactly what you want. Was there anything until this point that you pitched yourself for that you didn't get? Oh, of course, there were things that I that I tried and didn't get, but I never let it bother me. I, there's always something else to try. Okay. And one of the early things that I did, I wasn't really trained vocally, and I tried to audition for a job at Disneyland, and I did not do well, and I did not get the job, and that's when I realized I needed to get some training. So you can't just get up there and fake it. you got to be ready. In some ways, you can fake it. I've been faking it all my life and getting away with it, but once in a while, you just can't. You need the extra little, you need to really prepare for certain things. And I, I've always said to potential employers, I've gotten away with this all my life. Whatever it is they needed, I could do. The way they used to tell actors to say, yeah, you, yeah I can ride a horse, then quickly go learn. You know? Right. <laughs> I would learn how to do it. I always got away with it somehow. I just did. It was very seldom that I couldn't find a way to fake my in, way into a job and then make it work. And then I'd learn something new, and then I'd find out if I really wanted to be there. didn't matter. I learned something new. I never considered anything a waste of time. You entered a new realm recently, 
beauty pageants. You are Miss Senior Santa Clara and competed in Miss Senior California. Why beauty pageants? A couple of my girlfriends were at an event and met the director for the state pageant, and she asked them if they wanted to enter. And they said, no, but we know someone, and I was the someone. So she sent me a packet because they they told her to, and I looked at it, and my husband thought it was a cool idea and I should do it. So I went, okay, how bad can this be? I'll get some publicity. It'll be good for my organizations and my causes. You know, I'm always uh, promoting the Coalition of Songwriter and Music Organizations, and I'm always promoting our members including Gina for Missing Persons. We use music to find missing people. and I have a lot of reasons to, to want some publicity. That will help me. So I thought, okay, I'll do it. I got some sponsors to pay my entry fee and some of my expenses, and I went to the first pageant in Culver City. I found out later that Culver City is the most uh, difficult one because all the talented people live in that area, and it's really uh, loads and loads of, of Lovely ladies with lots and lots of talent. And uh, I had a great time. I thought I did really well. I felt terrific. I sang great. I modeled beautifully. I gave a nice speech. I was interviewed by the judges. I felt really great. I thought I had done well. The audience went crazy after I sang, and I thought, oh, good. I'm probably going to make the top three. And the top three go to the state finals. Well, when they announced the top three, I hadn't made it. And I went, oh, well, you know, whatever their reasons, I didn't make it, and that's not the end of the world. I gave it a shot. And as I was leaving uh, the stage and on my way back to the dressing room, two of the judges chased after me, both of whom were former Miss uh, Senior Californias, I found out later, and said, there's one more preliminary up in Santa Clara. We really, really think you should go. This was so close, you have no idea. And I thought, well, I must have been fourth, and I must have just finished out of the top three. Now we have to give you some advice. The dress you're wearing is champagne, and it's too pale. You're a very fair person. It washed out on stage. You need a bright, glittery, beautifully striking color. Okay, what else? Uh, Do not wear your reading glasses into the personal interview with the judges. I said, what? We're seniors. We're not supposed to wear reading glasses. I want to see their faces. No, no, it's old lady looking. You sh- they took off points for that. I said, <laughs> I can't believe it. Well, they're because it's a distractor. That's why. Well, I did. I thought, okay, fine. Well, two out of three. They wanted me to sing an up-tempo song. I didn't follow that advice, but I did. My husband talked me into it. The pageant organizers said, yes, 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 go to this last one. You really should be here. So we drove up to Santa Clara and spent the night in a motel, hotel, I forget. And uh, I did the pageant. I did the two things. I wore a beautiful, bright, royal blue, glittery thing, and I didn't wear my glasses, but I did still sing Over the Rainbow, which I had sung the first time. And I won. I Miss Senior Santa Clara. So now I'm I'm in the finals, and I went to the national, to the state pageant on August 22nd, and I didn't feel... My very best, because my husband wasn't with me. He's such a great support. He was in uh, Nashville putting on a conference that I was supposed to have helped with, so we had to go in two directions. And uh, the girl, my girlfriend who drove me, snored all night, and the hotel was noisy and people were making noise, and I didn't get any sleep. And honestly, I'm not a person who can sing well when I'm sleepy. And so I didn't feel at my best, and I had to carry all my gowns in and out, and I just felt poor baby, little orphan. I didn't have I didn't have all the support I was wishing for, but I did my best. I tried my best, and I did not win. In fact, I didn't do as well as I thought I should do, but the lady who won was an 80-year-old tap dancer, and oh boy, she was so cute. I, I got to say, you know, the, the parameters were just different. These judges were different. I also know that I did not do well in the personal interview this time, and it was an odd reason. Uh, I I was disconcerted later to to learn that one of our judges uh, for the interview was only 23 years old, and uh, she's the one who asked me, if you could have dinner with anyone alive today, who would it be? Well, of course, not having done beauty pageants before, I'm not real experienced. I don't think of this kind of thing. 
And I had to think a moment, and the first thing that popped into my head was Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu. And she looked at me and said, who's that? And one of the other people on the panel told her who it was. And I went, oh, boy. (laughs) Now I've made her look stupid, and she's going to not like me. And I'm pretty sure that I did not do well because of that one answer. And if I had it to do over again, that's one of the things my husband helps me with, is he comes up with all the potential questions they might ask me. I'd probably come up with an author, a book author, and it's less controversial. Controversial. So I'm learning lessons. I'm getting uh, little by little. I'm refining. I'm honing. <laughs> but I had a good time, and I had a wonderful publicity out of it. In fact, I was asked as one of the queens with a sash and a tiara, one of the prior winners, to go answer telephones for the Jerry Lewis Telethon, which was last week. So that was a lot of fun. And I was interviewed uh, also after the pageant, and I was on the news all day the next day. I think the reason that they chose me to be one of the two or three people whose interviews they showed is because I was the only one who sort of complained about something. It wasn't really a complaint, but it was a different answer than what other people were saying. I said, I have so much more respect for these pageant people than I ever used to because it's so much more difficult than I ever imagined. It's a lot of work. (laughs) They liked that answer, I guess, because it was on the news all day. Should we be expecting you to try again? They've all been trying to talk me into trying again, and I haven't decided yet. My husband wants me to do it also. My one, uh, One of the drawbacks is... My vocal coach, Elizabeth Howard, who is one of the great vocal coaches in the world, she's an author and she teaches all over the world, she's an opera singer. And they usually do pick the winner as an opera singer. The winner goes into uh, Atlantic City in October and competes for Miss Senior America. And since they prefer opera singers to anything, Liz is a good one, a really good one. She's thinking about entering the pageant next year. And if that's true, I don't really want to uh, enter the same pageant. I'd rather wait and skip a year if that happens, and if I do it again. Your personal life. Yes. You have been married three times. Yes, Two out of three husbands have been right fits. Right. My second husband was for 24 years. I lost him to cancer, unfortunately. And... You had said earlier about you're not quite sure why you married him, but I have a feeling you do have some ideas because we did discuss this prior to the show. So what is your blueprint for the right fit husband? I have a very strict moral code. Uh, I've been told by one of my very dear friends that it's more than most people can measure up to. Uh, For a man to impress me, he's got to have amazing morals and values. He's got to be a really wonderful human being in so many ways. And Peter was a fabulous, wonderful, honest person. Hello? Yeah. Oh, I heard a click. I'm so sorry. I thought maybe something had happened. No, that's fine. Okay. Uh, He was just an amazing human being. He was loyal to a fault. He cared about me beyond words. He took care of things to the point where I had to tell him, no, no, I can take care of myself. You don't have to do everything for me. He could fix anything. He could do anything. He was brilliant. He was exciting. He was interesting. He just had so many qualities that that I admired so greatly. And Steve also, he is an amazing person with amazing values, morals, ethics, impeccable. I mean, just These are two men who measure up, in my opinion, and I'm sorry, that's just what it requires for me. I require someone to be that terrific of a person. I've I've had two shining nights, you know, I just really have, and I feel very blessed, but I, I think I attracted the right kind of person because at some point in my life, I just got sick and tired of being a typical needy, always looking and hoping and somebody rescue me, and I I just hit a a plateau at one point, and I thought, that's for the birds. Men often just date this girl because she's cute and that girl because she's smart and this girl because she's funny and whatever. I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm just going to free myself of that. I don't need that. I need to be a right, right person. I need myself to be 
strong and capable and on my own and and doing the right thing for me and never mind somebody else. And that's when everybody started wanting to marry me, everybody. My ex-boyfriends came back, and all of a sudden they wanted to pin me down. And I went, what? No, out of here. You weren't right then. You're not right now just because you changed your mind. And so when Peter came along, he just felt right. I just felt instinctively. And I also think I'm a person who doesn't mind correcting. If if my course is wrong, I can change course. And if he had turned out not to be right, I could leave. I could get out of it. But I didn't need to. 24 years later, we were madly in love with each other till the end of his life. And that's just the way it was. And I was lucky that I actually kind of knew Steve already, and he always liked me and knew that I was very happily married and even waited two years to call me after he found out I'd lost Peter because that's how careful he is and how he would not want to offend and how much he had respect for my feelings for Peter. In fact, when we got together, he looked at Peter's trophies and pictures all over the walls, and he said, they should stay there. He's your family, and he always will be. And I'm just another member of your family. And you had the capacity to love him so much, and I know your heart's big enough to love me too. And I just thought, wow, this is somebody. Wonderful. You and your current husband, Steve Scott, created an organization called COSMO. Tell us briefly about that. Right. COSMO is is for coalition of songwriter and music organizations. We we were running Los Angeles Women in Music for the last few years, up until last December. Actually, Steve became the first man to ever be president of the organization, which was founded in 1986. And I was secretary. And on the board, we really brought this organization back from the brink of demise and made it prosper and flourish. And during that time, we found a way to host events together with some of the other organizations. And we tried to teach them we don't have to be competitors. We can work together, do things together. And out of that was born the idea that we could have an organization like Cosmo, which uh, would be the other organizations would be members of our organization, and we would help them to coordinate and put together events where they would work together and if we do an event, we have it hosted by one of our member organizations. And that way they're more successful, they bring in bigger crowds, they raise more money, they have a bigger footprint. Uh, it just works so much better when everybody works together. And the idea is taken off. People love it, and, and we're growing. And uh, we do something called Pitch a Song, where we get music supervisors to listen to emerging composers' music and sometimes get placed in television and films and we're just affording them opportunities they hadn't had before. We're making it easier. We're making it work. And Steve's a great organizer, and he's a great legal mind, and he knows how to facilitate, and I'm a good organizer. And we have Tony Koch of TK Promo. She's helping us, and she's a terrific organizer. And we have some wonderful sponsors, and we're looking for more all the time. And we're doing great work, and we're having a great time. It's cosmocoalition.org. Is our website, and uh, we're putting up pictures. In fact, we're going to put this uh, interview we're doing up there so people can listen to it later if they've missed the live interview. And that's our organization. We just we have a great time, and we, we provide a great service. My last question. What is your legacy, and how would you like to be remembered? Well, if I have to think of it as legacy, I would say I have a philosophy of life. And that philosophy, I noticed you echoed some of that in your, your, your intro to the show. That is, be your own angel. Take responsibility for yourself. Do things, be responsible, make it happen for yourself, and then be responsible for your actions. And I put my philosophy into all of my songs and all of my stories and everything I write, and I just hope the words I've written and the songs I've written have a lasting impact on people and that they get something you know, out of it. In fact, when I changed my life, I wrote a song called Nobody Wants You When You're Shopping Around. And that's because instead of shopping around and looking and hoping and praying, make your own opportunities. Create them. Do it. Wonderful advice. Thank you for joining me today, Judy, and I really do hope that you will come back soon. 
Thank you very much for having me, Arlene. It's been wonderful, but a pleasure. Upcoming show. Please join me again on Wednesday, October 7th at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview independent filmmaker Suzanne De Laurentiis, who follows in the footsteps of her family of successful filmmakers, producers, and directors. Her company, Suzanne De Laurentiis Productions, independently produced Tenth and Wolf, Brothers by Blood, Silicon Towers, Pocket Ninjas, Skate Dragons, Twin Towers, Graduation Day, Out of the Black, Shut Up and Kiss Me, Rocky Five, and many more. The film, Tenth and Wolf, a drama based on the investigations of mob informant Joe Postone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, won numerous awards. Suzanne De Laurentiis has won the prestigious Opal Award from Women in Film, a Lifetime Award for Music in Independent Films from the Hollywood Fame Awards, and the Distinguished Founders Award for Excellence in Filmmaking from the Palm Beach International Film Festival. De Laurentiis started the Cinema City International Film Festival, which debuted at Universal Studios in 2007 and was rated one of the top 25 film festivals by Movie Maker Magazine in the festival's second year. Archive shows. To listen to archive shows, please visit drbarro.com, that's drbarrow.com, and click on the date of the show description that interests you, and you will be connected to Blog Talk Radio. I suggest listening to Anne Edwards, Celebrity Biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee, Sherilyn Kenyon, best-selling author and queen of the vampire novel, Billy Lowe, celebrity hairstylist who is on his way to reality TV, Jan Constantine, general counsel for the Authors Guild who won the landmark copyright decision against Google. I would love to hear from you. Please email me drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarro.com, that's drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip, walk down the right fit road, and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.